If you want an easy life, don't become a Christian. If you want an easy life, don't become a follower of Jesus Christ, the one who was executed, declared to be a criminal. Of course, if you want to know the joy of sins forgiven, a guilt-free conscience, a a purpose-filled life, and the glorious hope of heaven, then he is the one that you must go to. But not if you want an easy life. If you're happier going along with the crowd, if you think that this life is all that there is, if you prefer not to think about the deeper realities of life. For following Jesus, understand this, will lead to opposition and it will lead to difficulty. Jesus himself told his followers, in this world you will have trouble. The Apostle Paul said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Apostle Peter said, dear friends... Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This isn't strange for the Christian. You see, sufferings, difficulties, and conflicts are to be expected, and it has always been so for God's people. Little wonder, therefore, that in our studies in Ezra and Nehemiah, this theme of opposition and difficulty plays a prominent part. Now, in case you're, you're new to this book, maybe you haven't been with us for the last uh, two Sunday mornings, let me give you a quick overview of, of what's going on here. See, Ezra Nehemiah charts the life of God's people as they settle back into their promised land. Having been in exile for 70 years... Uh, And they were then living in a foreign land that was over a thousand miles away. And as we looked at the book itself, we noticed that the book is divided into five fairly clear sections. The first tells the story of Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple. The second section occurs 60 years later. It tells the story of Ezra and the restoration of the law. The third section that occurs 20 years after that tells the story of Nehemiah and the repair of the walls. And the final two sections reveal a time of great blessing. The fourth section is great, seems they've got it. But then the book finishes with a recognition of the harsh realities of failure. Human effort was not succeeded, but that was deliberate because it was pointing forward. It was there to point forward in hope to the coming of the promised rescuer, King Jesus. And in each of the first three sections, we discover a story of difficulty and opposition, and they're there deliberately. They're there to teach God's people about the way that conflict arises and the way that it should be responded to. They're there for our benefit today. So let's get into the text. I want us, first of all, to notice the opponents who are uh, listed, who are named for us. The opponents, there are three main groups in these three first sections. There's the Samaritans. Now, I'm going to be making a lot of reference to these books, to Ezra and Nehemiah, so you might want to have it open to you. 
uh, ho open in front of you so that you can check what we're reading. There'll be uh, uh, more references than I would normally uh, be giving in the course of this sermon. So ch check it out with me. Ezra 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your gods and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, um, just again to give some history, you remember Israel was made up of 12 tribes. Uh, when the kingdom divided, it was two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, and the other 10 tribes were in the north, uh, based around Samaria. They were invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians took them, and in an effort to sort of water down their national identity, they shoved them all over the place. And in their place, they put other tribes that they'd conquered, and they brought them into that particular land. And in their attempt to adapt to this new setting, the people who had been forcibly resettled in Samaria, they tried to adopt the religion of the place. See, they were used to this idea that you worship the local god. And they went to Samaria, and they were having some problems, so they said, oh, we're not worshipping the local god, help us. And so what you do get is a mishmash of Jewish and pagan practices going on in uh, the north. We read the story about this, in fact, in 2 Kings 17, in verse 32. We're told this, they worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So, so you can see that what we have here is some sort of multi-faith initiative. You know, they come, they say, look, we're all worshipping the same God, aren't we? So let's join together. Now, I'm calling them the people on the fringe. People with whom we have a little in common, but not much. So that was the first group where attack came from in the first section. Second section, we find the attack came from inside. It came from community leaders. Community leaders. Go to Ezra 9. Verse 1, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. In other words, the leaders have forgotten who they are. The leaders have forgotten why they came here. Now remember, um, this is, they're addressing Ezra. Ezra happened 60 years after they'd first gone there. So these company, the, the company that had gone first with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, they're the ones who uh, are being addressed here. These are the ones who are intermarried. These leaders have lost their distinctiveness. They've lost the plot. And whilst Ezra is praying and grieving, realizing the problem that they were now facing, the people came up with the suggestion that they should commit themselves 
together to get rid of foreign wives. We read this in Ezra 10, verse 14. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each time, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikva, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai the Levite, opposed this. So this is where the next group of conflicts and difficulties are arising. It's within the community. These are people I'm calling on the inside. Not people on the fringe, but people actually on the inside. The third group that we find described in the third section I've called regional authorities. Regional authorities. You see, Nehemiah's arrived. He's inspected the walls. They're about to begin the repair program when three powerful characters intervene. Nehemiah 2, verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horonite... Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, archaeological discoveries have shown that Sambalat was the governor of Samaria. That was the region to the north. And there's been references to Tobiah, and particularly the family of Tobiah, who ruled the Ammonite territory uh, to the east. And then uh, Geshem ruled a league of Arab nations to the south. Now, all you really need now are representatives of Philistine, uh, the Philistine territory to the west, and Judah would be completely surrounded by political enemies. Oh, wait. Nehemiah 7, uh, 4, verse 7. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, yep, that's Philistine territory to the west, heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So you, you get it. Judah is surrounded. This is serious. Now, these rulers and governors were, were subject to the mighty Persian Empire. They weren't independent rulers. But they had enough autonomy to be very dangerous to the people of Judah. And with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, these governors saw it as a real threat to their power and wealth. Because if you think about it, uh, Palestine, Israel, is just a relatively narrow strip of land that, that leads... Uh, right down, sorry, I should be doing it that way for you, uh, right down uh, through their land towards Egypt, Africa, uh, and so on. It's a major trade route. It was a really uh, profitable trade route. And so with the building of the walls of Jerusalem and the possibility that this trade might actually divert to Jerusalem for uh, rest and taxes and stuff like that, that was going to be a threat to all these other regional leaders. And not just that, the exclusive claims of Jehovah to be the only true God. That was deeply threatening. You know, how dare they suggest to, to them, to Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, that all people should acknowledge their God, as if Jehovah, Yahweh, was the God over all gods. So I'm calling these the people on the outside, not the people on the fringe, 
not the people on the inside, but the people on the outside. So you see, we've got three different groups. There are three different ways in which they are attacking. So let's now, secondly, have a look at the tactics that were employed. What did these opponents do? How did they try to damage God's people? Well, take the multi-faith group, the, the group on the fringe, having been told by Zerubbabel that they had no part in Jehovah's work. They suddenly turned from being sweet and reasonable to being seriously troublesome. Now, there's a great temptation for me to make uh, allusions to multi-faith groups uh, operating today, but I won't do that. Ezra 4, verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, so you've got this group, they're, they're, they're bribing people, they're using the system, and you know it works, it works. For 16 years, the people of Judah put down their tools. There was no work, there was no progress on the temple because of this. The second group, the inside group, as we've called them, who'd been exposed because they divorced their Jewish wives and married newer foreign models that they had seen in the territory, these folks continued their practice of obstruction from the inside. In Nehemiah 5, actually, we read how they enslaved people who owed them money. They were fairly rich, so they charged considerable interest. And in Nehemiah 6 and 13, we discover that some of them intermarried quite deliberately with wealthy, influential families outside Judah. So that we're actually told they married with the families of Tobiah and Sambalit, and they provided help and advice to Judah's enemies from the inside. And the outside group, that of the aforementioned Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they played really dirty. There was anger, there was ridicule, there was intimidation. Nehemiah 4, verse 1. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, I, I like that little point, you know, you can make the threats when you've got an army standing behind you. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. And actually, in chapter 6, there are a number of attempts to isolate and assassinate Nehemiah, the leader, for what he, he is doing. For example, Nehemiah 6, verse 2, and this is just one instance of a number that occur here. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. Yeah, they wanted to get him on his own, and he would have been assassinated. This is serious. So there are a whole number of tactics being employed by a whole number of those opposed to God's work. Verbal attack, emotional distress, physical violence, 
and the sheer draining effect of repeated threats, time after time after time. Okay, but we need to go on and ask the question, what was the response? In the face of all of these issues, what do we see happening as God's people, encircled by the opponents, then working in various ways to try and bring about their demise? What is happening? Number one, God's word is declared. God's word is declared. You see, after having paused the building of the temple for 16 years because of the opposition of the fringe multi-faith group, God's word comes to the people. Go to Ezra 5 verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and Joshua son of Josadak set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And by the way, when it talks about the fact that they prophesied, prophecy uh, was primarily speaking out God's words. It, It wasn't primarily sort of forecasting an event, it was speaking out God's truth into a particular situation. And by the way, the wonderful thing is if you want to uh, read the words of these prophets, they're there, they're here in in our Old Testament. They're in that section we call the minor prophets. We call them minor prophets just because they are shorter in length, not because they're less important. And, And they're there. And if you go there, you can see Haggai's plain speaking, challenging the folks, and we can read of Zachariah's encouraging visionary words that were delivered to them. So God's word is declared. Secondly, a man of peace intervenes. A man of peace intervenes. You see, the Persian official who had responsibility for this whole area and for these various provinces, he intervenes with integrity. Uh, The way the Persian Empire was structured was you had these governors of particular regions, people like Nehemiah and uh, Sam Ballot and the others like that, but then they had a, a, a level above them. They had the regional governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and his name was Tatanai. And, and Tatanai seems to be a good guy, because he asks for some research to be done. You see, accusations are brought to him. The Sam Ballots and the Tobias go, oh, do you realize what's happening? And he said, let me check this out. And he does. He asks for some research to be done in Babylon as to whether what the Jews were doing was allowed. And they do eventually find the original order of King Cyrus. And uh, the instruction comes back to Tatanai, look, this was issued, do it, make sure it's done. And we read this in Ezra 6 verse 13. Then because of the decree, King Darius had sent Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shetha Bozanai and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. So a man of peace. God provides a man of peace. Thirdly, genuine repentance is evidenced. Genuine repentance is evidenced. You see, when Ezra became aware of the intermarriage by many of the 
uh, religious and social leaders of the Jews. Probably something he wasn't aware of when he was the religious secretary to the Persian government. But now he's become aware of it and he is convicted. He feels the corporate sin of God's people. And, and some of the people with him sense the same. Ezra 9 verse 3, he writes this, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then Ezra 10 verse 1 picks the story up. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. You see, God so moved upon his people that change was effected. There was brokenness, there was humility. And it was in such a situation that God worked. So genuine repentance is evidence. The fourth thing I notice here is that wise plans were put in place. Wise plans were put in place. See, when Nehemiah became aware of the threats of violence against the wall builders, he took some very practical actions. Nehemiah 4, verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Here is some wisdom, practical wisdom and action being taken. So, so what we are seeing in these various areas is the breadth, is the brilliance of the responses when God's people are experiencing conflict and opposition, seeing how the people in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah responded to these things. But we mustn't leave these lessons back in 450 BC. They're here for us today. They're here so as God's people, we can respond for his glory in all the situations that we face. Now, look, this is a massive subject. I've really had to wrestle with the, how broad it is, and forgive me for this. What I need to do in the space of a few closing minutes, it's actually well nigh impossible to apply these uh, truths in any depth, but let's note some of the lessons that emerge. Number one, God's people will be opposed. God's people will be Opposed. See, in every situation that Ezra and Nehemiah faced, there was opposition to the work that they were doing. And as we saw at the start, this is still the inevitable experience of all God's people. And such opposition will come in a variety of ways. And it will come in a variety, at a variety of times. 
Little wonder the Bible teaches us to be alert as to where the attack is coming from. Peter writes this, 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. My friends, the question is, you're going to face this. In one way or another, we're going to know difficulties. You, you may well be going through something at this time. And if you aren't, you will be. And, and the question is, where is it going to come from? We, we see there's a variety of ways in which the attacks come. A variety of ways in which conflict arises. So which way is it coming from? The, the, the wisdom here, God's word, says be alert. Understand what's happening. The old Christian expression was that these attacks come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Maybe you've heard of that expression. And, and actually, that's exactly what we've seen. It comes from the world, you know, those who are on the fringe, those who we have some connection with. It comes from the flesh. The, the, the attack is from the inside. It comes from the devil. The attack comes from the outside, maybe in sudden, sharp, unexpected ways. My friends, be aware of the battle. Be on your guard. It would be sheer foolishness to do otherwise. Secondly, God's word will be speaking. God's word will be speaking. See, Haggai and Zechariah spoke into the people's situation in such a way that they were strengthened and they carried on the work. Ezra then applied God's law to the whole problem of intermarriage. And Nehemiah celebrated the truths of the covenant. He made sure that those truths were front and foremost with the people. And my friends, whether it comes from hearing that word preached or reading it for ourselves, it is God's word that brings strength and brings wisdom to bear upon the problems that we experience and the situations that we confront. It is God's truth. So let's have our ears open to what God is saying. Let's not just be sermon tasters. I realize that can happen so easily. You know, we come along on a Sunday and, and we're looking, you know, for the form of the sermon and the construction of the sermon and the intonation. Did he pause enough? Was what he was wearing, was that helpful to the sermon? And, and we think about all these other things. My friends, that's not the point. The point is, what is God saying? What is God's truth ministering into our lives? Let's not just be sermon tasters. Neither should we treat our quiet times as tick bock exercises every morning. You know, oh, I've got to read some chapters of the Bible. Here's my two chapters. Well, let's hurry through these so I can just tick the box and go into my day saying I've done it. But I haven't read it. I haven't really understood it. It really hasn't had entry into my heart. My friends, let's hear God speaking into our lives because God is not silent. He is the God who speaks. Every time we read this word, God speaks. God is speaking. What is he saying to you in your situation? Are you listening for his word? Thirdly, God's spirit will be moving. God's spirit will be moving. Did you notice what God does when his word is at work? It's accompanied by his spirit acting upon hearts. Ezra 9 verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my 
tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Now, what is that? That is the spirit of God at work, taking his word, humbling his people and bringing them to urgent prayer and repentance. And at times of conflict and opposition, our first response should not be the assertion of our own power, of our own rights, but rather the recognition of our weakness, of our failure, of our need. Look, I don't know what particular problems you're facing at this time. But I do know that our starting point should be to look in and see our own sin and readily confess it before we start complaining about the shortcomings of others. My friends, the Bible says we need to be those who keep in step with the Spirit. The Bible says that if we are God's people, Christ is in us by His Spirit. This isn't a doctrine which is peculiar to one section of the church. The Holy Spirit, the third blessed person of of the Trinity, is the one who does the work and brings the word and glorifies Jesus and shines a light into our lives. Let's be sensitive to his leading and prompting, as the scripture says. Don't let's quench him. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. God's Spirit will be moving. Fourthly, God's wisdom will be active. See, Nehemiah's plan to combine security arrangements with work practices was wise. It ensured the work went ahead. It gave confidence to the builders. And it showed to their enemies that they were prepared. They were ready for it. And it may sound like an obvious thing to say, but we're called to act with wisdom as we live for Christ. We're going to have to fix our minds on what's profitable. We're deliberately going to guard our eyes from stuff that won't help us. We're not going to put ourselves in situations that we might find too hard to control. We're going to be mindful of our own weaknesses and avoid temptation in those areas. Someone we love deeply as a family, one of our family members, is an alcoholic. And her wisdom is such. She said, I can't go anywhere where there's going to be booze. That's great wisdom, and it has served her well now. That is wisdom. And my friends, that's the extreme example, but there are many others that we need to follow through as we look at ourselves and the way that we are wired that we might be wise. Look, this is obvious thinking, yet the reality is that many a Christian has been tripped up by their own foolishness, by their own disregard for wise behavior, by their own giving in to known areas of weakness, by their own willfulness. You see, great King David became an adulterer and a murderer and a liar because he was in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing without the right checks in place. He was foolish. No, godly living requires godly wisdom. 
Brothers and sisters, think about how you live for the glory of God. My fifth point is this, God's community will be supportive. God's community will be supportive. Nehemiah's wise strategy was dependent upon the mutual support of the members of the community. Nehemiah 4 verse 19, we read this, And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. And my friends, that same sense of communal solidarity carries through to the church, to the family of God. Paul writes this to the Galatians in Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You see, it's as a community, it's as a church that we are able to help one another. It's as we are able to share wisely insightfully with others about maybe some of the situations that we're going through that they can help and pray and support and love and whatever is required. Do you know the phrase one another that we so often come across in the New Testament about the church? It's actually a phrase that occurs a hundred times in the New Testament and of those about two-thirds are directed towards how the church, how God's family should operate. Let me give you some. By the way, if you want the references, uh, just just, uh, email me. But love one another. Do you know that command occurs 16 times? Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Build up one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Look to the interests of one another. Teach one another. Encourage one another. That's what we do as church, as that family of God's people. We interact, we're community. We do not isolate ourselves from others. That's not church. We need the support of one another. That's church in action. That's helping one another through times of stress and strain, times of challenge and opposition, times of failure and sin. The sixth thing I need to say, we're getting there by the way, God's plans will be vindicated. God's plans will be vindicated. Now, if you've read through this uh, uh, book, Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll have come across a whole lot of letter writing that goes on in Ezra chapters 4 to 6. Because opponents tried to show that these Jews were dangerous characters, but the research, remember Tatanai, it revealed the opposite. And King Darius wrote that people should support and not hinder the work. Now, this was more than they could have hoped for. And so we, we read, I, I, because of time I won't read the section to you, we've read it already there in Ezra 6, but they finished building and there was a lot of celebration because they realized God was for them. And when Nehemiah completed the repair of the walls in record time, despite the severe opposition, he knew, we read this, Nehemiah 6.15, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. God is vindicated. My friends, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what difficulties or conflicts you're experiencing. But I tell you this, God will be vindicated. 
he, he may be vindicated, as it were, in, in time. But my friends, if there is no clear vindication in time, I tell you this, in the eternity of glory, you, you will see that vindication. There is no situation that you will be able to point the finger at Almighty God and say, you got it wrong there. You will be, he will be vindicated. His perfect plans will be revealed for what they are. You see, Satan so often overreaches himself. Satan is a fallen angel. He's powerful, ambitious. But he scores own goals. Now, some of us, more than others, maybe are following the Euros at the moment. And uh, there's been a record number of own goals in the Euros. Do you know, of all the scorers of own goals, it's Satan who tops the league of own goal scorers. He does stuff. You know, he's vicious and he, he targets his anger and powers upon particular situations. But you know what? Our sovereign God, <laughs> in his wonderful grace and goodness, just overrules that for his glory. That's what happened here. Here's Satan stirring them up, getting them to write letters. And what happens? A letter comes back and says, yep, they're doing what's good. So please support them. And if you don't support them, you will be killed. Oh, great own goal, Satan. Here is Jesus dying on the cross and Satan triumphing as it were. Look, I've got him. Nailed to a cross. He's going to die. And then on Sunday morning, he rises. Jesus Christ alive forevermore. The victor over sin and death and hell. Classic own goal. Our God reigns. The final, honestly, the final point I want to make is this. God's example will be encouraging. God's example will be encouraging. These will be familiar verses to you from Hebrews 12, verse 1, but let me read them all the same. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and by the way, that includes Ezra and Nehemiah, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not go weary and lose heart. Consider See, while it's good to get encouragement from the example of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's even better to focus on King Jesus. He experienced opposition from those on the fringe, like the Pharisees. He experienced opposition from those on the inside, like Judas. He experienced opposition from those on the outside, like the Roman authorities. And yet he kept going in the purposes of God all the way to Calvary's cross, and there to die his sacrificial death to redeem rebels and failures and screw-ups like you and me. You see, we're not on our own as we face our own unique trials and difficulties. There's one who's gone before. There's one who's familiar with suffering. One who knows what it is to experience pain and ridicule. Who knows what it is to experience rejection and injustice? One to whom we can go at any time and in every situation. Consider him. After I've prayed, we're going to be singing. 
uh, a song as we close, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And there's a couple of verses we're going to sing there. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Saviour, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Father, we realize that uh, as we come here, Father, in each of our hearts, there's a whole load of uh, pain and difficulty and questions. And we thank you that your word is so relevant. Thank you that your word doesn't duck away from these issues. Thank you that your word doesn't promise that everything's going to be sweet and hunky-dory. But Father, thank you that your word gives us ways that we can live for your glory, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, keeping in step with the Spirit, lifting our eyes to your throne, to your glory, to your reign, to your purposes. Father, therefore, for my brothers and sisters, I pray that you will have mercy. Strengthen them, particularly strengthen those who are going through the valley at this time. And Father, for those in this congregation who don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, please, would you, by your Spirit, speak into their lives. May they know the joy, the comfort, the delight of being on the side of King Jesus, knowing their sins are forgiven, knowing that our God reigns. And we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.